my practice normally uh, as a pastor in, in the preaching moment, at least up here, is to try to navigate intentionally through books of the Bible. Um, generally, when I preach, I preach through a book of the Bible. Sometimes we've done series that are more topical, and that's fine. But generally, we go through books of the Bible. And right now, we're going through the book of Colossians. And I, and I, I believe the reason that I do it like that is because I'm just convinced that God has given me a job to expound on his word. Um, systematically as he's given it to us. So that's why we sort of go through books of the Bible like that. Um, it helps us to hear God's word, which is the power of salvation. Amen? Um, and we're in a, in a passage right now that's just unbelievably applicational to the spiritual life. Um, and also, if you're not a Christian, I think it has great application to you as well, wherever you might be at. And we've been learning about what we've called this sermon series from Colossians, um, we've called it Supreme Jesus because Jesus is the central figure um, in a very unique way in the book of Colossians. And it's presenting Christ as Lord of the universe and Lord of our lives. And because of that, it's, he is the means, the exclusive means for us to experience a meaningful and full life as, as we are connected to him. And, and it's, it's something that we're all after. The, 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 the cry of our heart is to have significance, to live our lives fully, um, to enjoy each day. And sometimes we find that we don't know ourselves. We don't know who we are. We don't know why the world is the way that it is. And Supreme Jesus is the answer. So I want to continue to unpack that a little bit more for you this morning um, as, we, as we dig into this text. When I was 15 years old, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. So I was a, I was a young man. I grew up in an evangelical church. And, I, you know, when I was a really small boy, I sort of, you know, just agreed with what the adults around me were saying. But as I grew up, it didn't really mean much to me. I wasn't following Christ. I would have said I was a Christian. I knew what the gospel was. Y you know, if I was standing at the pearly gates and someone said, why should, why should we let you in? I would know the answer to that question, right, logically. But I didn't know it in my heart. So when I was 15, though, I, I, I did. <laughs> I, I believe that's the point when I, was, when I was born again and I came to saving faith in Christ. Um, I knew at that moment um, that Jesus was the answer, he was the savior, and he was my purpose. So I set out like gangbusters to follow Christ. And some of you, if you've, if you've had a conversion experience, come to faith in Jesus, you might identify with that. But a year or two prior, though, you know, so now I was at the ripe old age of 13, okay, um, or 14 years old. You know, even at that age, sorry, parents, I know, I know that we don't like to imagine this, but at 13, all I was interested in was girls and fitting in, right? That's what, that's what my heartbeat was. If a girl sat on the side of me and her shoulder touched mine, that was the end of it, right? That's all I needed. It was good enough. Um, one group led me down this road that I think my mom and Dave would probably remember quite well of exciting new experiences, he was 17. He owned a Buick Regal T-Type, right? So in other words, fast, fast car. It was souped up too, by the way. It had hydraulics. You ever see these things? They bounce down the road, right? And he had those really fancy rims with the spokes and like the propeller in them. Um, amazing 15-inch um, subwoofers inside the car. This thing was a magical vehicle, right? And add to all this an extra dose of rebellion and high speed 
not listening to my parents, defying them, doing, doing the exact opposite of everything that they told me in secret. Right? So that was how I was living my life. And when I experienced this group of people, I was hooked. So I started listening to hardcore gangster rap. Like, like I drank water, I listened to this stuff. Dr. Dre's The Chronic, right away, don't listen to that, just by the name, the title of the CD. Ice Cube, Easy e the most vile and violent rap imaginable that you can think of. And I was 13, <laughs> right? So I knew my parents absolutely would forbid this. Um, so what I did was I hid all of these tapes. They were tapes at the time. And, and I had the speaker in my room, and I unscrewed the back of it and hid them inside that speaker and screwed it in. Now, one day, I came home, and my speaker was upside down. And I knew that Dave Brailsford had been in there. <laughs> Someone tipped him off. I don't know if you remember this. Someone tipped him off, and I'm like, oh, I am in trouble, right? So this is what happened. It was like a TV show, like a movie. I came out into the kitchen, and he was sitting there with the, the stack of tapes, didn't say a word, looked at me, and he said, I'll let you decide what to do with these. And he walked into his bedroom. So this is what I did. I threw them away, and a week later, I replaced them. <laughs> I felt bad for a second, and then I was right back into it a week later. And I, and I hid them again in the same speaker. He never looked in there again. Just thought I... So this was my life, and you add to it pornography, unrestrained, just like sexual drive and more, and I was just a young teenager. And I was concerned with it all, not because I wanted to be rebellious or I wanted to be difficult, but because it did something to my heart. It made me feel something I had never felt before, free, alive, significant, important. Right? I felt these things that I had never felt before. But then it just started to fizzle out. It started to not work anymore. And I realized that what th this was causing more damage in my life. And, that, and then when I was 15, I came to faith in Jesus Christ at a summer camp. And everything was reversed. I threw every all the CDs away. It was, they were all gone and not by Dave's prompting anymore. And not just the, file, the vile stuff, too. Anything that wasn't about Jesus went in the trash can. Boys to men, gone. Right? Everything was gone. I took an about face. So anything or anyone, anyone that didn't talk to me or about me with Jesus um, was, was off limits. And I started witnessing the gospel to everybody. I would leave gospel tracts in my then stepmother's back seat of her car, like passive aggressively. Like say, oh, I'm sorry, I just dropped it in there. I apologize for that. Right? Like th this was sort of the way that I was living my life. Every, everything that wasn't Jesus was out. So I preached Christ, and I didn't hang or listen or keep company with anything or anyone that was even remotely worldly. Have you ever been there, right, in your life? So I didn't drink. I didn't date because I kissed dating goodbye, right, little reference. I didn't drink, I didn't date, and I practiced no-touch love. That, that's a little of my personal background. That wasn't a book or anything. But if you're from my background, you know what, what I'm talking about. So I didn't Drake. I kissed Aiden goodbye and no touch love, baby. Right? So I grew, but, but then I grew up and I started growing in my faith and getting grounded in my faith. And then I started experiencing some really hard things in life, pain and loss. And consequently, 
I, uh, just in this, this period of time in my life, I started thinking I'm probably being a little bit extreme, right? Like all of this religious vigor in my life is maybe a little bit too much. So I, I started to move, like if you have worldly over here and you have Jesus like super uber religious over here, right? I was here, but then I moved here. I started moving the needle a little bit this way. Um, and then over time, I started moving it a little bit more and a little bit more. And without realizing it, and without even intentionally jumping into it, I, I developed a drinking problem. And all of the name at the time, in the name of Christian freedom, that was how I justified it. I'm free to do these things, aren't I? So somewhere along the line, in so many different ways, I was missing the mark on life. Drinking's not a sin, right? doesn't say it is a sin in the Bible, so I'm going to exercise my, my Christian freedom, and I did. And it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And it subtly and slowly started to control my life. I became self-deceived, and I used Christian freedom to justify a crippling slavery to substance. And that was my life. And what lay underneath all this was the real issue. It wasn't about girls, and it wasn't about alcohol, it wasn't about rap music. It was about my life. It was about me, my soul, who I am. So I moved from complete rebellion to legalism, right, to pushing the lines of freedom and justifying worldliness. And where did this leave me? Where's not, none of it worked, so where am I left to turn? And that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks, Jesus. I was left to turn finally to Jesus Christ and not to my solutions and to live and walk freely in the light of his life. You say, well, that's so ambiguous and vague. What do you even mean by that? Well, let's, let's continue, and hopefully it'll make more sense by the end. This is precisely the subject matter of this morning's um, scripture text, what I'm calling the dance of freedom and restraint, the dance of freedom and restraint, as it pertains to living a full and meaningful life under the headship of Jesus Christ. So let's get into this. There are tools that we all use, if you're a Christian or not, to find meaning and pur purpose and happiness in life. And, I, and, and our text gives us three of those tools, and this is really going to be the body of our sermon this morning. They are hedonism, legalism, and asceticism. We're going to get into what these mean as we go. So hedonism, legalism, and asceticism. I want to look at each. Let's look at the first. Hedonism. That's a fun word, isn't it? It basically means a sensually self-indulgent centeredness. A sensual self-indulgence. That's what hedonism is. It argues that sensual pleasure, a pleasure of the senses, even suffering, a stimulation of the senses, this is the source of our well-being and health. This is when we really start to find real life and start living it fully. Now, I don't want you to confuse the word sensual with sexual, okay? Because I don't mean sexual. It includes that, but it's not only that. Sensual is anything that involves the senses, which is sight, right? Sound, touch, taste. The, it's the body. It's the flesh, Right? But it's not, it's not only that. According to Scripture, it's the heart. It's the gut. It's what makes us feel pleasure or pain. Okay? 
So in hedonism, the highest priority is to excite or to serve your senses. And if you're pulling that off, then you're living life the way that you're supposed to live it, according to the hedonist. And our text hints at this in verse 23, as some who practice this as a way of life. It says in verse 23 in chapter 2 of Colossians, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack value in, value in restraining sensual indulgence. So the implication here is that there is a group of people that do not restrain sensual indulgence. And at the time, in the Colossians church, we would have called these people hedonists. It's a way of life. Sensual indulgence in the Bible can also be understood as the indulgence of the flesh. That's like a Bible word for it, when we indulge the flesh. An indulgence, meaning the process of obtaining complete satisfaction. So my goal in life is to completely satisfy my senses. You see, who's Lord in that scenario? Your senses are. Because your goal in life is to satisfy them. So you prioritize the flesh. Again, meaning the senses. And that includes, by the way, not just physical pleasure, but also the heart, the emotions. Because we learn in Galatians 3, what are the acts of the flesh, the senses? Sexual immorality, that's certainly physical, that's the body, right? Impurity, jealousy, envy. See, not just a physical experience, but a condition of the heart. See? The picture here is of someone completely self-oriented who is a slave to their senses and to their emotions. If I want cake, I'm going to eat cake. That's going to make me feel good right now, so I'm going to do it. If I want sex, I'm going to have it. And I'm going to have it with who I want to have it with. If I feel mad, I'm going to yell. If someone cuts me off in my car, I'm going to give them the bird. All right? If I feel sad or happy, that's the focus of my life. I'm going to cave in on that happiness or on that sadness. I'm going to focus in on it. I'm going to promote that sense. I'm going to serve that sense. So the flesh and the heart become our functional lords. Does that make sense? And Paul warns us in Galatians chapter 5, My brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So what he's saying here is that God has made us flesh. It's okay to have joy. It's okay to enjoy food, beautiful sights, sounds. It's even, an, it's even okay to appreciate a sexual partnership. These general experiences of the senses are, can be good, God-ordained, even encouraged, but the Bible gives us conditions. And this is when we start to learn about what it means when we are to restrain a sensual experience. How are we to know when not to satisfy a desire of the flesh? Isn't that a good question? Because sometimes it's okay to do it, and sometimes it's not. What's, what's our rule? How do we know this? Well, I think the Bible can give us some conditions. And the first one I want to go through with you is, is simply this. If the action is without exception forbidden, we can't do it. Does that make sense? 
So joy, pleasure, food, sight, sound, sex, general experiences of the senses are permissible, even encouraged, yet with the condition if the action is without exception forbidden. So what I mean by that is, for example, it's not without exception forbidden to have sex. It is without exception forbidden to commit adultery. Right? So the Bible tells us there's never a context when it's, when it's okay to commit adultery. You see what I mean? It's never, there's a fornication, it's the same thing. So in other words, sex outside of marriage. There's never a context in which, that, in which that's okay for us. God's moral code to us teaches us that, that the context for, for appropriate sexual pleasure is marriage. So if the a- action is without exception forbidden, then there are no exceptions. If it makes me feel good, if it, if, it, if it pleases my flesh to the touch, if it pleases my sight, if it makes my heart feel peace, it doesn't matter because it's forbidden. Drinking alcohol is not without exception forbidden in Scripture. But drunkenness is. You see what I mean? So that's the first condition. If the action is without exception forbidden, but the second condition if, is if the action is worshipped. And let me explain to you what I mean. This is important. Because I think most of the time, as Christians, we fall here. We know, you know, not to torture children, right? Like, even if it makes us feel good in a sick way. We know that that's, as Christian, right, we know getting drunk and driving down the road 100 miles an hour, you don't got to tell us as Christians we shouldn't be doing that. You see, but where we trip up often is this one. If the action is worshipped, and let me explain to you what I mean. The second condition that should restrain our flesh is if the action is worshipped. Now, worship is a strong word. So we might quickly kind of shriek back and say, now, I don't worship my actions. Of course I don't. Have you ever heard the expression, the good is the enemy of the best? Have you heard that expression? Oftentimes we use it to like, you know, a good job for me versus the best job for me. You know, more suited to this one, more gifted, right? And I want to do this versus a good job and I can kind of do it, right? The good is the enemy of the best. Pursue the best for your life. It's very postmodern and we love sentences like that, right? But it's true. We become centrally indulgent when we become a slave to some behavior when it becomes a solution to our inner heart problem, okay? Things that are not wrong, that are not forbidden, become a solution to the inner identity crisis that we face, okay? So friends, the best is not a life of ease. If we are looking constantly for comfort in our life, there's nothing wrong with comfort. God doesn't forbid comfort. But if we serve comfort to solve our heart problem as a means to live life fully, then we have exalted comfort into the place of God and we've worshipped it. You see what I mean? The best is not a life of ease. And friends, can I, might, I, might I suggest to you too, the best is not a life without pain. The best is not even a life of complete, ultimate physical pleasure. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. God has not forbidden us to have phys- physical pleasure. As a matter of fact, he wants us to. But if they replace him as the cure to our soul problem, then they are sinful. You see? If these are the best, then our behaviors will serve these objectives. Let me explain to you what I mean. 
if the highest goal of my life is to feel loved, right, then I am going to serve that desire. And it doesn't matter what commandment of God I have to break to get to it. If daily ice cream binges do it, then I'll do it. If habitual substance dependence gives me a sense of equilibrium in life, then that, if, that's, if, if that's my goal, then that's what I'll do. Sexual experiences, maybe they make me feel loved and important. Then that's what I'll do. I will break all of those commandments. You see, before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you have to break the first one. That's what Martin Luther said. You shall have no other God before me. You see, we sin against God because something else is our God. Does that make sense? And, s- and most of the time, that something else is a good thing. It's not a forbidden thing. So there's a lot of careful honesty that you have to do with your soul. What is, what, what is it that I really think is going to give me complete, full life? Maybe it's the approval of your colleagues at work, the approval of parents, uh, a relationship where a, a man or a woman loves you. So you bow your knee to that relationship and you'll do anything. You'll break any of God's, God's commands just to get their love. You see, but that person, love is good. God doesn't forget, forbid love. He tells us to get married, right? But that person is not Jesus. You see? These are good things, but we use them often to solve our problems, our identity crisis. We make them our gods, and we use them to solve our inner struggles. But the best life is lived under the headship and love of Jesus Christ. He is what you need. So we feel our pain with him. We don't escape it with Netflix, alcohol, or ice cream. We feel our pain with him. We tell our pain to him. We don't escape our pain. We live in it and bring it to him and cast our cares on him. You see, friends? You see, you see what I'm getting, the importance of this? Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I have the right to do anything. <laughs> I, like, I, I think most of us just want to stop there, right? I have the right, it's, it's in the Bible, I have the right to do anything. So he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, I will not need a substance, a relationship, a person, anything in this created world more than I need Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I won't be mastered by anything because Jesus is my master. Now, he doesn't mean we have the right to do anything, anything, of course. He's not talking about those things. I have the right to do anything. He means that he has the right to do anything which God has said we could do. But he's, what he's getting at here is even those things can become a trap, and I, I can become a slave to them. And he says, I won't let them master me. Because if they become a coping tool instead of God's spirit, they're a dangerous cancer. Good things become our chief sin against God and ourselves. Galatians says this in chapter 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, 
so that you are not to do whatever you want. (laughs) So friends, we're not to do what God has forbidden, but we're also not to be mastered by what God has permitted. We are not to do what God has forbidden, but we are not to be mastered by what God has permitted. Oh, so important. That's, that's such an important sentence for me, and I hope that you write one, that one down and think about it. The senses are meant to be enjoyed, excepting number three, <clears throat> if the action violates the law of love. So the first one, if the action is without exception forbidden. Number two, if the action is worshipped. And number three, if the action violates the law of love. And this is what I mean by this. Um, that if my behavior is causing an unnecessary offense to God's people and world, even if I'm free to do it, I'm not going to do it. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, I have the right to receive pay from you. He was preaching the gospel in the context to a group of people in Corinth. He was working hard, and he said, I have a right, just like every other worker, to receive pay from you. But he said, you guys have money is a stumbling block, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take pay. I'm going to make tents. Because I don't want to get in between, I don't want to get in the way, I don't want money to get in the way between you and Christ. So I'm not going to make it an issue. He had the right to receive something, but he denied himself. He was free to do something, but he didn't do it. Romans chapter 14, he does the same thing. I have the right to eat certain foods. Foods even sacrificed to pagan idols. He said, I can eat that. I can eat what I want. I'm free in Christ. He said, but I won't do it because it will be a stumbling block to the weaker brother. So the warning here concerns putting sensual behavior that is permitted okay with God. We put the love of each other before it. So a real-life application here would be maybe we could talk about alcohol. The Bible doesn't forbid ever drinking alcohol. But if if I'm in the presence of people that I know it's a stumbling block to, they're more important than my drink. I'll just drink Diet Coke. Chances are, too, if you can't do that, you might say it's because of your freedom, but it might be because you have a problem. Like if you're really refusing to put love before a glass of wine at Olive Garden, maybe, maybe there's something more going on than just the exercise of Christian freedom. So let me summarize. Hedonism as a source of life, is a dependence on and overindulgence in the service of our senses as the solution to spiritual and emotional equilibrium. And it says that on the screen. Let me say that again. Hedonism, oh, I'm going to run out of time. Hedonism, as a source of life, is a dependence on and overindulgence in the service of our senses as the solution to spiritual and emotional equilibrium. And it doesn't work. Satisfying your senses constantly doesn't give you hope. It doesn't solve the problem that's deep within you, and it doesn't give you a full and meaningful life. And the second thing that doesn't work is legalism. So hedonism, legalism. And it's in verses 16 and 17. Let me read it. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let no one judge you, the the text says. About what? And Well, it tells you about whether or not you're right with God because you 
practice the Sabbath day, or you do eat certain things or don't eat certain things. He's presenting religious sorts of behaviors and disciplines. There were people at the time that were following the Old Testament law as if Christ had not completed that law. So they were requiring certain religious um, duties that the Old Testament saints had, like circumcision, practicing the Sabbath day, not eating certain foods on certain days. The, The Israelites were supposed to follow God's law, but Paul says that Christ came and completed all of those things pointed to him. So when he came, the reality is found in him so that we don't have to keep practicing those certain religious rites and duties. Does that make sense? But there was a group of Christians that were saying, no, we still have to do those things. Now, I've suggested to you that to be right with God is your life. It's where you find everything that you've been looking for. So if that's true, it's to be right not only with God, but it's to be right with you. It's to get yourself for the first time. That's what we're after, a sense of rightness with God, with ourselves, with the world around us. That's what we're after. The legalist says that we get this rightness with God by keeping the Old Testament law in the context of Colossians. And I will add to that, the legalist of today says not just the Old Testament law, but whatever your law is. You see, the evangelical church has some laws, doesn't it? Right? You know, 50 years ago, you had to wear, you, you had to wear dresses if you were a woman. That was a law. Right? It was an unwritten law. Like, that was a mark of holiness. So we all have our sets of laws that we, we sort of abide by that God has never commanded us to even do. And we think by keeping them, it makes us right with him. So for the Jew, it meant being circumcised, observing holy days, etc. And this to the legalist, it makes you right with God and is a test of your rightness with him, his world, and with ourselves. But Romans 3 completely knocks this out of the water. It says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, not through keeping the law. That is not to say that Christians can do whatever they want, that there's no law at all. It is to say that rightness with God does not come by observance to the law. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So the law a Christian is under is not the Old Testament law, and it's not your mom's law. It's not your boss's law or your teacher's law. It's the law of the Spirit. And it says this is the law of the Spirit. I'm glad you asked what it was. It's in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, the legal system proves that we've sinned against God. And the more we try to keep it, the more we realize we're not going to keep it. But what Paul's saying here is the law of the Spirit is that you've been saved by grace through faith, that there's no condemnation in Christ, so you are under the law of grace. Isn't that great news? 
It means that by faith in Christ, we're not condemned because we've broken any of God's law, both written in Scripture and in our hearts, but we are under a new law that is the law of the Spirit, one in which we're saved by his undeserved favor. And adherence to this new spirit law is not one that we earn life, but one that we're given life. And we live that life in obedience to Christ, not to save ourselves, but because we've been saved already. There's a big difference. It doesn't mean that there's no longer any right or wrong or law or constraint for the Christian. Rather, we don't confuse that constraint with what gives us life which is Christ. Oh, I hope this makes sense. The legalist obeys the law to get life or to buy it back. The Christian obeys the, another law, the law of the Spirit, which is the law of love. God's undeserved, gracious favor to us. Being formed into the image of Christ doesn't mean that when we observe religious rites or rituals that we're made right with him. All of these things, when we, all, of these, all of these Old Testament laws that we see are a shadow of the source of life. You know what a shadow is? It's an image of something real. It kind of resembles it too. My shadow is a sort of reflection of me, but it's not me. You can maybe figure out by my shadow that I'm a human being. I have a head and legs and arms, right? So in the Old Testament, what it's saying is all of these things are a shadow of Christ's. They sort of give us a picture of who Jesus is, but they're not Jesus, right? The Sabbath day pointed to a rest provided by Christ at the cross. So a day is not a Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. Saturday is not the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the rest. What you eat doesn't make you unclean. Sin makes you unclean. The heart. The sacrifice of bulls and goats doesn't make you clean. Jesus does. You see, they were a shadow of someone else, a greater goat, right? A greater, a, a greater sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself. So then, we're to obey God's commands, but Christ is our law. And friends, if you're not religious, you can just as easily be under a law. What do you pride yourself in? What if you, if you fail at it? Do you feel yourself a failure? If you live this way or that way, do you feel proud of yourself? You see, if, if you answer those questions, you probably have some kind of law written on your hearts or taught to you by somebody. And aren't you equally condemned if you break your own rules? Isn't that true? Because we fall short of standards, whether they're ours or someone else's. Friends, legalism, in legalism, we think we can free ourselves, but it always winds up being our master. We think I can be good enough, I'll live up to the standard, and then I'll prove myself as right. But it never works. We always fall short. So let me summarize. Legalism as a source of life is a dependence on the observance of law as the solution to spiritual and emotional equilibrium. Legalism as a source of life is a dependence on the observance of a law, no matter what law that is, as the solution to spiritual and emotional equilibrium to life, and it doesn't work. Isn't that true? It doesn't work. Here's the third thing that we use, asceticism. 
okay? Asceticism. This is in verses 18 through 23. It doesn't work either. Asceticism is the exact opposite of hedonism. It's, it's the polar opposite. It's the true opposite. If hedonism sort of gluts itself in sensual satisfaction, asceticism will deny it completely. If I feel like something is pleasurable, I won't do it. Right? I'll do the exact opposite of whatever my senses tell me is good or pleasing. That's asceticism. It's akin to maybe some Eastern philosophy that claims that the body um, is evil and that desire is evil. And that's the source of all our problems. The body is evil, therefore sexual indulgence has to be resisted and rejected because it's evil. It's, this is what's wrong with us, and it's why a full life eludes us, because we keep pleasing ourselves. And verses 18 through 23 touch on this. Let me summarize these verses just to remind you. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. They have lost connection with the head, who is Jesus. Since you died with Christ to the forces of this world, why do you submit to the rules of this world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Things destined to perish based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So here's a group of people that literally makes themselves suffer, that denies themselves anything that's sensually pleasing. And Scripture calls it a man-made law, one that does not garnish life, one that disqualifies you from life. To refuse the body's appetites and to deny any sort of desire is what they believed would bring liberation to the soul. And friends, this, this sort of thinking has crept into the church over the years. It's why priests can't get married. It's why um, we've exalted virginity over se um, sex inside of marriage. It's why monks, Martin Luther, for example, used to whip his own back till he would literally pass out from the blood because he believed that torturing his own flesh somehow would purge himself of evil. Right? We need to experience sort of like this pain. This self-denial brings with it, according to this text, this is what they believe. When you deny yourself, you'll end up kind of plateauing at this mystical experience. They called it the worship of angels. So now you, you sort of have elevated yourself out. You've lifted yourself out of like the problems of the flesh and the world, and you're not part of it anymore, and now you're kind of hovering up here in some kind of like exalted place. You're not, you're not touched or moved anymore by any loss or pain or pleasure if it has anything to do with phys the physical life. You're above it. And friends, might I suggest to you too that this is the attitude of a Buddhist. The Buddhist concept of nirvana is that we are going to eliminate desire and suffering and become enlightened. The only problem with that as a worldview is that Jesus became flesh and died and suffered on a cross for us. He didn't escape it. He embraced it. You see, the, you see what Christianity does to this 
mentality that we have to always deny anything that it is that we desire that, that pleases us because we want to be spiritually elite or have peace in our heart. Jesus takes on flesh. He enjoys a piece of fish with his apostles and laughter with children and the pain of a cross. You see, asceticism doesn't work. If I can summarize what it is, it's a source of life that is dependent on self-denial as the solution to spiritual and emotional equilibrium. It's dependent on self-denial. Now let's just sort of summarize, and we're going to close right here. The first one is a dependence on self-pleasure. The second one is a dependence on obedience to a law. And the third one is dependence on self-denial. Where is Jesus in any of this? So what does that have to mean? He's nowhere. What does it mean? Let's put our thinking caps on together. It means that Jesus doesn't give us life. We do. We're God. All of these are man-centered solutions that, continu that continue to reject God as our absolute Lord and Savior. You see, we're still looking internally. We're still looking to how we can solve our own problems rather than live under the gracious care of God himself. Jesus, friends, none of this works. Jesus works. Asceticism doesn't work. Hedonism doesn't work. Legalism doesn't work. Jesus works. He works. He's the way and the truth and the life because... In our text, he is the head which causes our growth. He's the head. Not our legal observance, not our asceticism, not our self-denials. He is. Life under Christ as the head doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the pleasures of life as we do in good food and beautiful sunsets, romantic marital lovemaking. All those things are fine. Following Christ isn't a reversal of hedonism. It doesn't mean that there's no right or, or wrong. That there's no law that we're under. It's not the reversal of legalism. It's not the exact opposite, right? And it doesn't mean that we're never called to deny ourselves of something that we might want that's good and permitted. So it's not a reversal of asceticism. Following Jesus means just that. We get our life from him and not these other things. And we do and trust him when he leads us. And if that is, he's leading us to enjoy something wonderful, then we enjoy it. And if he's leading us to deny ourselves something that we desire, then we deny it. Because those things are not our answer. Jesus Christ is. He's the answer, the way, the truth, and the life. He's our greatest pleasure. He is our living law. And he's worth giving everything up for. I hope that you'll know that this morning. And that you'll find Christ in a new way. Could you all play, pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your favor. If there's anyone that doesn't know Christ this morning, I want to speak to you just for a moment. Would you put your faith in him right now? Would you trust that when he died on the cross, he died for people like you and me? Because all of our imagining how to find life takes it from us. 
So Christ came to, to be a substitute for you and for me. Friend, would you cry out to God, God, save me, I'm a sinner. I've trusted in all these solutions that I've invented, and none of them work. Save me. I believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he died in my place for me. Oh, friend, if that's you, you're saved. You don't got to come forward. You don't got to fill out a card. You don't got to spin in circles. God saves you. You don't save you. Receive it and be saved. God, I thank you, Lord, for the rest of us that might know you this morning. I pray, God, that we would not revert to an old way of thinking in which we think that somehow our greatest satisfaction in life is found anywhere but Jesus Christ. Help us to daily seek you so that our love for you can grow and the image of Christ in us would shine through. Pray, we pray now, Lord,